I'm at church, chatting with friends. A man walks through the open door and I know immediately who he is. I've heard the rumours. He's all round the village. Apparently, he's not long out of prison, a long stretch for armed robbery. Before that, it was ABH, they reckon. And before that, youth detention for gang violence. Glance up quickly. His face seems to be set in a come-on-then kind of scowl as he looks slowly round the room, hands held as fists by his side. I look down, and then to the side, and then at my phone, anything to avoid eye contact. I feel scared and uncomfortable. I know I should be friendly and welcoming and let my light shine and all that, but he sounds properly bad news. What if I say the wrong thing? What if he kicks off? What if he's here to cause trouble? Why has this violent, menacing, messed up person come to our church? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Our story today shows the dangers of prejudging others on their reputations and assuming we're better than them. And it also highlights the difference between how we see others and how Jesus sees all of us. Luke constructs this story in layers, like a narrative lasagna, with the complete dish only coming together at the end. And as his ingredients meld together and build to a big picture understanding, we finally see at the end what Jesus knew at the beginning and what he wants us to know now. That forgiveness is for all sins and for all people. So, let's meet our characters. Layer one of our dish of the day is Simon the Pharisee. And our first question is, hang on, I thought all Pharisees despised Jesus, so why is Simon inviting him round for dinner? Well, we can take from his invitation that Simon hasn't yet formed a negative opinion about Jesus and is, at the very least, curious about him. And he thinks he'll make an interesting dinner guest. Cultural practices at the time suggest Simon was probably putting on what we'd call in our family a proper spread. These banquets or symposium meals would often centre on a teacher or renowned public figure and all the guests would be encouraged to debate and discuss some of the chewier topics of the day. The rim itself would remain open and it was socially acceptable to gather around the edges of the room, even if you weren't invited to the meal, and listen to the discussions. So, this was an occasion when it was actually the done thing to be a fly on the wall. So, we've met Simon, our first layer in the story. And it's time to meet our next character, the sinful woman. Now, I'll admit, I've always felt a bit sad for this courageous and faithful daughter of God, that she's forever known in print as the sinful woman, instead of, say, Doreen or Nancy or whatever her name was. Whenever I read this story, it seems a shame that the label attached to her is sinful, especially as it soon becomes clear that her sinfulness is the least unusual thing about her. After all, everybody sins. And as the story develops, we see that she could more accurately be called the extraordinarily grateful and loving woman 
and that actually Jesus gives her a totally different label, the forgiven woman. Reading between Luke's beautifully written lines, we can surmise that this woman has experienced God's forgiveness during a previous life-changing encounter with Jesus, and we'll come back to that later. But for now, it's enough to know that this is a woman so faithful and so overcome by her gratitude to Jesus that she braves public ridicule and rejection just to be in the same room as Jesus eats his dinner in. So, we've met Simon and we've met the woman. We're aware of the groaningly laden table and the milling of interested guests, invited and uninvited, in the room. And now it's time to meet our third main character. Arguably the mainest main character in any story ever. Jesus. He's accepted the invitation of the curious Pharisee and he accepts the socially shocking ministrations of the socially shocking woman. And as the narrative starts to unfold, this acceptance forms another important layer in our multi-layered tale. Now, we've got our characters all lined up and ready to go. So let's clap the clapperboard and shout action. But for now, it is just action. No one says anything. Imagine, for a moment, being one of the many flies on the wall at this proper spread. You've come to listen to some interesting discussions, to hear Jesus, Simon and others debating and wrestling with current issues and theological or philosophical topics. The room is warm, the air heavy with the scent of good food and fine wine. Suddenly, the figure moves towards the table, hunched and sobbing. She lets down her hair in public and starts wiping and drying Jesus' feet with it. Then she kisses them over and over again. And as you gasp at their brazenness and wait for Jesus to rebuke her as he should, you become aware of a new and overpowering aroma in the air. This isn't spiced lamb or good wine. This is expensive perfume wantonly wasted on the feet of this controversial teacher. You've never seen anything like it. And still, no one speaks. Well, in fact, someone does speak, but only to himself. Luke records Simon as saying to himself, well, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And this simple self-directed aside tells us much about Simon's preconceptions and opinions about Jesus. He knows Jesus' reputation as a teacher and prophet but he hasn't made his own mind up yet about who Jesus is and whether he actually deserves the title prophet. This kind of internal monologue is so common in today's writings that we barely even notice it but ancient authors hardly ever used it when telling their stories and when they did it was typically at a crisis point in the story as the hero grappled with some intense internal conflict. Luke also occasionally uses internal monologue in crisis situations when the thinker wrestles with a difficult decision. But unlike Homer 
and Ovid and Virgil, Luke's thinkers are not heroes. We never see Jesus thinking to himself. Instead, Luke tends to use internal monologue for characters who are self-centred rather than noble or heroic. Similarly, in the Old Testament, inner speech tends to depict the thoughts of the wicked. So in Psalm 14, we have the fool saying in his heart that there is no God. And in Deuteronomy 29, the one who turns away from God blesses himself in his heart. These and other Old Testament passages emphasise the foolishness of characters who indulge in ungodly self-talk. And these other characters, like these other characters, Simon faces a choice, believe in Jesus or don't. It's simplified here as Jesus is a prophet or he isn't. And when he asks this question, Simon makes a number of um, important assumptions and reveals important aspects of his character. First, he reveals his own lack of hospitality because he doesn't want to talk this through with Jesus. Instead of asking Jesus whether he's a prophet, whether he is who he claims to be, Simon asks himself. Secondly, he presumes the woman's status is sinful, based on prior knowledge of her past behaviour, rather than new knowledge of her forgiveness, but more on that later. And finally, Simon assumes that if Jesus was a prophet, he would know this woman was sinful, and he also assumes that if Jesus knew she was sinful, he would reject her and wouldn't let her touch him. Simon has some clear ideas about how Jesus would behave if he knew what kind of woman had entered the dining room. And when Jesus accepts the woman's attention, Simon believes he can't be a prophet after all. Every part of every one of these assumptions is wrong. And to let Simon know just how wrong, the dinner party silence is finally broken and Jesus speaks. Hear the next part of this story carefully, because it really is a fantastic piece of writing. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. So Simon, in the privacy of his own mind, asks himself whether Jesus is a prophet. And Jesus, out loud, answers him. I love this. Just a wonderfully understated moment of prophetic proof. Jesus does, in fact, know the character not only of the one who's touching him, but also of the one who's silently judging him. And the thing Simon has to tell, uh, the thing Jesus has to tell him is a parable, which reframes all those assumptions and presumptions Simon's been forming. The parable describing a generous moneylender who cancels the debt of two contrasting debtors ends with his own question. One owed 500 coins and the other 50. Neither of them could pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? And of course, the answer is the one who owed more. 
But Simon's answer carries with it a faint air of reluctance as he replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Now, this could simply be uh, mulling over by Simon. Hmm, I suppose. But I do wonder whether the penny's starting to drop. But despite his clean and pure status as a Pharisee, he needs forgiveness as much as the next man or woman in this case. And finally, Jesus turns and we return to the woman and her local reputation for sinfulness. Jesus continues to speak to Simon, saying, do you see this woman? (laughs) Of course he does. (laughs) She's walked into his house, sobbed on the feet of his renowned guest and poured a whole jar of perfume on the floor. Even if she wasn't already infamous for her previously sinful behaviour, of course he's seen her. But Simon the Pharisee doesn't see the woman as she is. A humble, forgiven sinner pouring out love for Jesus because he's looking at her as she had been, a notorious sinner. He's been thinking that Jesus is the one who couldn't see her. But Jesus turns this thought around saying, do you see this woman, Simon? Do you see her properly? Since I've been here, you haven't greeted me or loved me or respected me. But see this woman, Simon, see her love, see her repentance, see her devotion. That's what I see. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And her love is deep and wide and life-changing. But those who are forgiven little, love little. So finally we see why this woman has risked public condemnation to be in the presence of Jesus and our multi-layered story nears completion. She's come to the house, come into the presence of Jesus, full of faith and gratitude and love for the forgiveness and acceptance she's been given. She would risk any kind of public humiliation for a moment in her Saviour's presence to thank him and love him and worship him. And when she approaches Jesus and washes and anoints his feet, she does so not as a sinful woman, but as the faithful and forgiven woman Jesus sees and loves. And Jesus has one last lesson for Simon the Pharisee, his collection of guests, and for us, a parsley garnish to finish off the dish. He says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And as they all start muttering among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Their purity won't save them. Their good works won't save them. And certainly their superior presumptions won't save them or us. Whatever our history, whatever our behaviour, whatever our social standing, it's only faith in a holy God that will save us. Peering into this historical banquet, this Galilean symposium, we learn a timeless lesson today. When we better see who Jesus is 
and fully accept the forgiveness he offers, we'll better see people the way Jesus sees them. Not as a righteous Pharisee or a sinful woman or whoever gazes back at us when we look in the mirror, but ultimately as a deeply loved child of God.